0: Hey guys, it's me, Dr. Katz. Next up on today's podcast, why does my period hurt so much? Primary dysmenorrhea debunked. The pain is real, guys. So what the heck is primary dysmenorrhea? Well, primary dysmenorrhea is defined as significant pain during your menstrual cycle without a specific or identifiable cause. To me, this is a bit misleading because there is a cause for the pain, and we'll explain that in a bit. I think it should say, without a specific anatomical or additional pathologic cause outside of the normal biochemical reactions in our bodies. So dysmenorrhea can interfere with our quality of life in our daily activities and performance. You know what I mean. We all know women who have to miss work or school because of their severe cramps, pain, and bleeding. Dysmenorrhea is the most common gynecologic condition affecting women. The percent is reported anywhere from 17% to 90%, depending on what you read. Sometimes the pain is minimal, but sometimes it literally stops the woman from being able to function. Current statistics state that up to 15% of women that have dysmenorrhea actually miss work or school or functioning in general with regularity. Even for those women that do not miss work or school, the pain is often enough to reduce focus and productivity. In the United States, it's estimated that there are about 600 million hours of productivity lost to dysmenorrhea. This translates to about $2 billion annually. I think that deserves our attention. Just keep it in mind the next time a work or school colleague has to stay home because they're in pain with their period. The stuff is real, folks. So what causes this pain? What is primary dysmenorrhea? Well, primary dysmenorrhea is pain with menses that has no underlying pathology. Dysmenorrhea is called secondary if it is caused by another condition like endometriosis, fibroids, pelvic inflammatory disease, or interstitial cystitis. For the purposes of this, we're going to focus on primary dysmenorrhea. So primary dysmenorrhea usually starts at the onset of ovulatory menstrual cycles. So usually women... Do not ovulate for about 6 to 12 months after menarche, which is the onset of menses for the first time. Sometimes ovulation doesn't start for up to two years. The pain is usually crampy, comes and goes, and increases in intensity. It starts just before bleeding starts and lasts up to 72 hours. There can also be nausea, bloating, diarrhea, and vomiting. So who's at risk for primary dysmenorrhea? Well, there are multiple factors. One, body mass index less than 20. 2. Smoking. 3. Longer menstrual cycles. 4. Irregular or heavy flow. 5. History of sexual assault. 6. Menarchy younger than age 12. 7. Age younger than 30. And a family history of dysmenorrhea. Usually it gets better with age and after childbearing. So here is the pathophysiology. Okay, so the pain is probably due to the increased prostenoid secretion. So what the heck is a prostenoid? Well, are prostaglandins or thromboxanes and prostacyclins. Okay, what are those? Basically, all we need to know is that these are chemicals that cause cramps. So the process goes something like this. When we ovulate, our progesterone stabilizes something called lysosomes. Lysosomes are like storage containers full of inflammatory chemicals, Okay. So at the end of the luteal phase of our cycle, the end of our cycle, the second half, our progesterone levels go down, and these lysosomes break down and release a chemical called phospholipase A2. Well, this chemical starts the cyclooxygenase pathway, which then causes production of the prostanoids that I talked about before. Then, voila, cramps. So, the main prostanoids that concern us when it comes to period pain are prostaglandins. Those are the compounds that make the uterus contract and that restrict blood flow in the uterus. So, and when there's less blood flow in the uterus, then there's less oxygen. When there's less oxygen, there are more chemicals that are produced that stimulate pain receptors. And on top of that, some of the prostaglandins that are produced even lower the pain threshold. So they actually sensitize the nerve receptors. And then on top of that, if that weren't enough, the prostaglandins are also responsible for all the gastrointestinal symptoms we know and hate. There are compounds that are different that are also involved in this process. But since the prostaglandins are the main big bad mojo, we're going to focus on those for the purposes of this podcast. So let's keep going. Now, if the prostaglandins weren't enough of an issue, it's also been documented that women who suffer from primary dysmenorrhea actually have an altered pain sensitivity in the first place. So this altered pain perception in dysmenorrhea has been looked at all the way back to the 1940s. This altered perception is part of what's called central, sorry, central sensitization syndromes. So these syndromes are all associated with pain hypersensitivity without documented, you know, t- tissue injury, inflammation, or an actual nervous system lesion. So this set of syndromes includes several disorders like low back pain, tension headaches, and irritable bowel syndrome. All of these conditions lead to increased and amplified sensory input and thus results in the patient having more pain with less stimuli or reasons to have pain. So I'm pretty sure we've now effectively established that primary dysmenorrhea completely sucks. So what can we do about it, right? Well, there's multiple options. Right now, we're going to focus on the non-surgical ones, okay? Okay. So, what are the goal of these, these options? The goal of each of these options is to interfere with the prostaglandin production, decrease muscle tone in the uterus, or inhibit the pain perception with analgesia. So, before we go into these options, it's important to remember that the real key to success and compliance with any regimen is shared decision-making between the patient and the doctor. Make sure the patient is an active part of deciding on treatment after discussing side effects and efficacy and everything, and this will help greatly. If the patient is invested in the option, it's much more likely to be helpful. So, first category, hormonal. Combined, which means both estrogen and progesterone, birth control pills are number one in this category. They're effective in about 7 to 80% of patients. They inhibit ovulation and prevent multiplying of endometrial cells which then in turn decreases the prostaglandins and the progesterone and the vasopressin. So this way applies to the pill, the ring, and the patch. Extended use, like skipping the placebo week, seems to be the most effective. Now there is a possible risk of blood clots with this method, although this risk is very small, in your low-risk non-smoking patients. Now, There's also progesterone-only contraception, like Depo-Provera or like the Marina IUD. They also inhibit ovulation and eliminate menstrual cycles. Some of these can cause irregular bleeding, though, and since this bleeding is still an ovulatory bleeding, it's usually not associated with pain and dysmenorrhea. The risk of blood clots is also lowered this way. Um, Sometimes there's weight gain, but this can usually be avoided with proper nutrition. You know, like if you're not snacking 20 extra times a day, you're not going to gain weight. Now, prefer itself has been associated with decreased bone density, but that seems to be completely reversal after stopping it. And while this sounds concerning, it's not been deemed enough of a reason to discourage patients from taking it in the first place. Now let's go on to non-hormonal options for primary dysmenorrhea. So non-steroidals are a first-line treatment and are effective for the vast majority of patients. So how do they work? Well, they work by inhibiting that cyclooxygenase enzyme we were talking about earlier, because that will in turn suppress producing of the prostaglandins. It's kind of like stopping the cramps before they can even be created. Now, these non-steroidals also have a direct analgesic effect right at the central nervous system level. So there's not a lot of evidence to say that one is better than the other's, but usually medications like Motrin, ibuprofen, leave, and Anaprox are like your first choice options. More expensive stuff like Celebrex, those are reserved for second options. Um, Ideally, these are taken as needed only. A popular uh, regimen would be to start the medication like two days prior to the onset of the period and continue for the first 72 hours of the cycle. The key is to not wait till the pain's already started and try and catch up to it but to act proactively instead. So here's another possible non-hormonal option. Magnesium. Magnesium appears to reduce the amount of prostaglandins in the menstrual fluid. It's also a muscle relaxant and causes blood vessel dilation. This sounds logical. There's not a ton of data yet, but it sounds promising. Here's another one. Calcium channel blockers like nifedipine. They can cause muscle relaxation and decrease prostaglandin production and possibly even reduce the uterus contractions, but again, we need more data, but I personally would feel kind of hesitant to prescribe a blood pressure medicine for cramps. I'm just saying. Now, vitamin E, also another possible non-hormonal option. It's been shown in some small studies to reduce dysmenorrhea. It's also been shown to increase oxygen delivery to uterine cells and decrease prostaglandin production and inhibit the cyclooxygenase enzyme. So logically, this should result in reducing pain and cramping. But most of this data so far is in mice. So who knows about humans? Here's another one, ginger. It also inhibits cyclooxygenase and decreases menstrual pain. And the added bonus to ginger, it's an anti-nausea medicine. So it may help with the GI effects as well. So far in studies, they've looked at doses anywhere from 750 to 2,000 milligrams a day with the same amount of efficacy as non <laughs> Go ginger. So, there are some other possible non-hormonal options for dysmenorrhea as well, but these require a lot more study, but they're interesting. First one would be like a TENS unit. TENS stands for Transcutaneous Electrical Nerve Stimulation. So the theory here would be it would work in three different ways. One, it would send electrical impulses to the nerve root, elevate the pain threshold, and so therefore the pain cessation would not be felt. Two, it would stimulate the release of endorphins, which reduce pain. Or three, it would increase dilation of the blood vessels in the uterine muscle and therefore reduce the hypoxia, which would then reduce the pain. Here's another potential interesting one, acupuncture which is with the needles, and acupressure, which is with the firm pressure. So these two methods, the theory is, would stimulate designated locations to relieve pain. So there are specific sites on the body, on the oracle of the ear or the medial calf muscle, or near the medial malleolus of the ankle, that have been identified as possible beneficial treatment areas for dysmenorrhea. No specific regimens that have been backed up by studies yet to recommend it with total confidence, but what's been looked at so far ranges from doing the treatments once a menstrual cycle to daily for seven days during the cycle. There'll be more to follow as we get more data. Let's not forget, too, the good old heating pad applied directly to the suprapubic area. Local heat, it improves tissue oxygenation, it dilate sorry dilates blood vessels, and dilutes the levels of prostaglandins, All of these can lead to decreased pain. We need a lot more evidence, but hey, it makes sense, right? Oh, and let's not forget about exercise and yoga. So those two things, you know, increase endorphin release, lower stress and anxiety, and increase blood flow. Now, I'm here to tell you that as good as that sounds, the thought of jumping on the exercise bike or doing some aerobics in the middle of a crazy period sounds a little daunting to me. I get that there's some moderate quality evidence that this helps over the long term, plus other health benefits of exercise, of course, but I still think I would have a hard time putting it into practice. I'm going to opt to continue to follow how that plays out for now. There are also a number of herbal and complementary remedies that have been suggested for dysmenorrhea as well, like rose tea, fish oil, krill oil, sweet fennel seed, low-fat vegetarian diet, and decreased dairy intake. Now, so far, I'm going to be honest with you, there isn't any high-quality evidence for any specific dietary supplement, but still, the side effects are minimal, so why not try it, right? I mean, the bottom line is dysmenorrhea is a real thing that affects millions of women and costs billions of dollars in lost productivity. Beyond that, it can really affect quality of life and daily function, both mentally and physically. It deserves our careful attention with a thoughtful plan tailored to the patient's specific needs and risk factors. Think about it.